All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal. And as I mentioned, it's no longer Creedal Catholic. Of course, we're still just as Catholic as we always were, but it's Creedal because we want to broaden the aperture a little bit and talk not strictly about theology and apologetics, but also about all things culture. And one of the things that shapes culture, every culture since the church has been around, has been the church. And in fact, um, Larry Chap, who's a friend of mine and rejoining me for our second now, I think our fourth total, but our second official monthly episode, uh, has written a lot about the church, uh, especially recently on his blog, and I wanted to uh, make that a topic of conversation for our monthly episode today. So, Larry, welcome to the show. Hey, it's always great to be on your show, Zach. Good to hear from you. No, I love having you. Love our discussions. I think uh, we, we see eye to eye on a lot of things, and I always learn something from you every time I talk to you. So uh, you mentioned to me oh, that you yeah. are, are, you're broadcasting from a different location today, so tell me more about where you are. Well, actually, I'm on the uh, Catholic Worker Farm that uh, I I own and operate here. Um, usually my broadcasts have come from a second home that we own in the Scranton area near our ordinary uh, parish, very small house that is because our ordinary parish is about an hour away from us. So sometimes we need to be there for very late litter, like the Easter vigil lasted till huh, gosh. So we like to crash there and it was a very inexpensive home. So you and the internet is better there. So hopefully the internet won't kick out here, but I'm on the farm. Great. Yeah, I, I would love to hear more about your farm at some point. Maybe not today well, sure. if we don't have time for that, but uh, I'd love to hear more about it. I know you have written about Dorothy Day, um, and you're yes. obviously inspired by her spirituality, and, and she's the reason why you decided to to do exactly what you're doing now. So uh, I like how you end every blog post with Dorothy Day, pray for us. It's, it's great. Oh, and I just posted a new one today, and I forgot to do that. So I'm going to have to go in and edit it and, and do that. So thanks there for There you go. Yeah, I look, forward to, I look forward to seeing it every time I read a, a blog post. Uh, okay, um, great. Yeah, and I always oh, like, no, I... as long as we're on, on the topic of Dorothy Days, just so your uh, viewers know, I mean, we are great fans, my wife and I, of Dorothy Day and the co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, Peter Morin. But we're not great fans of the state of the current Catholic Worker Movement, which has really, it's really gone down a wrong path. It's, a, it's sad to see, but it's true. Well, let's take two minutes, because I am completely ignorant on sort of the state of the worker movement now. So I, I think I have a pretty good understanding of how it originated and what Dorothy and, and Peter did to start it and their spirituality. But tell me more about what you mean by where it's gone today. Well, it's really a simple story and it's a typical story. Uh, they, the, the movement was pretty strong and solidly Catholic until basically the middle part of the 1960s. And like so many other Catholic institutions, in the 1960s, they lost their moorings and Catholic identity and morphed into simply a, a philanthropic organization devoted to radical leftist, you know, social justice causes, some of which I like and some of which I, I don't like. But most Catholic worker houses anymore are just hotbeds of dissent from Catholic teaching on sexuality and so forth you know, and uh, pushers of women's ordination and so, all the trendy issues, in other words. There are not a lot of bright theological bulbs in the movement, and they've just all drifted into a real secularized nonsense. So I, I really have very little time for them. I think the movement is largely unsalvageable. Uh, and But fortunately, the movement really isn't a movement, in the sense that Dorothy Day bequeathed a, a great autonomy to, you know, you could, anybody can open a Catholic worker farm or a Catholic worker house of hospitality and call it Catholic worker because there's no central certifying bureaucracy. That's right, right. Yeah. You can't do that. 
So, so hey, you didn't have to apply for a, a license, yeah. Okay. We call our, and we're totally Orthodox Catholics, and we're Catholic workers because we love Dorothy Day. But we don't have much to do with the rest of the movement. Got it. Yeah, so to what extent is your, I mean, you know, I, I guess there, there's no certification process, but what makes your farm yeah. a Catholic worker farm? Well, the main thing, is a couple of things, we uh, we grow things, like animals and food, and we give it away. You know, we don't sell it. We give it away to soup kitchens and, you know, food pantries and that sort of thing. So that's the service part of it. We also raise sheep, and my wife teaches people how to spin wool. And one of the, uh, we, we process the fleece, and she teaches people how to de process it and spin and that was one of Peter Morin's big visions as to why he believed in Catholic worker farms. He oh. wanted the farms to be places, you know, kind of like you'd call them a homesteader today, retrievers of artisanal skills, you okay. know, like yeah. milking animals, sure. chickens, you know, with the eggs, uh, learning how to spin wool again, learning how to make your own butter and cheese again, and, you know, learning how to sew again, and, and all of these skills, very tactile, that were lost you know, post, say, World War II, Peter Morin really believed we needed to retrieve because they were good for the soul. So that's a big part of what we do. And then also Peter Morin was big on what he, what he called roundtable discussions. Okay. So we like, we, we are, our place is a hotbed of hospitality where we host all kinds of people just to come over and, and we discuss the, you know, creedal. We're creedal. We talk about the great cultural issues of the day. Perfect. No, I love it. That's a great, a great segue into what I was going to ask you next. I was reading a recent post of yours. I think it was the second in uh, in your numbing down of the church. Maybe it was the third or even fourth, but it was one of your recent posts in which you you talked about how <laughs> they all run together, don't they? <laughs> they do for sure. But you, you talk about how ours is not an age of faith. That's uh, what Benedict the Sixteenth has said. We've talked about that at length before on this podcast. And then you said, uh, and I wrote down a, a paraphrase here. You said, in a sociological sense, our age is an age of faith because all cultures have a credo, even if it is in the form of liberalism's anti-credo credo. And you wrote that without us coordinating this or the name change for my podcast, etc. cetera. Uh, but you're right. getting at something that, that I'm getting at as well, that, that every culture has theological presuppositions and theological premises built in, even if those theological premises are based on you know, anti-theistic or atheistic premises. So can you talk a little bit more about just what you, what you mean by how ours is an age of faith, even if it's not an age of the right faith? Yeah, um, I mean, today I just posted a new blog post today, and it's, it's the start of a new series called The Universal Cult to Holiness, and, and part one is about political liberalism. And so I expand on that comment at much greater length at the, at, on the post that I just posted today. But for now, with regard to the numbing down of the church, yeah, I mean, it's all politics is ultimately, in some sense, theological, in the sense that all politics eventually has to ground itself in some kind of first principles, some kind of vision of the good, uh, philosophical concept of the good. It has to have a set of values and a hierarchy of values in order to govern properly. And all, <coughs> all of those things imply a theology, ultimately, or at least some kind of a metaphysics open to theology. Now, liberalism, unfortunately, political, and I hope your viewers know by liberalism with a big L, we don't mean liberal versus conservative as in American right, politics. Right. We mean that political movement that came out of the 18th and 19th centuries that decoupled 
government from religion and develop democracy and human rights and constitutional forms of governments and uh, gradually and gradually became much more secular over time and asserted essentially that God is irrelevant to the project of governance and in fact God is dangerous to the project of governance and God has to be bracketed and set aside and the, the state has to be secular in order to keep the peace amongst these warring religions. And so there is a kind of myth of original violence in their myth of origins that to justify the modern liberal democratic state that is neutral towards God, it has to invoke this this boogeyman, this narrative of original violence where religions are this uniquely dangerous thing to the body politic. And so they have to maintain this fiction this fiction that governments are non-theological and non-neutral because then that would mm -hmm. violate the whole founding narrative. And so Alasdair McIntyre, the great philosopher, said that liberalism is the only meta-narrative that pretends it's not a meta-narrative. It's the only metaphysic that pretends it's not a metaphysic because there can be no neutrality towards God, the question of God. There is no neutrality on first principles. You either endorse first principles or you endorse different first principles. So all governments are ultimately integralist, to use that term, in some fashion or another. And it's just going to be a, a question of how you're going to nuance whatever confessional truths you want your state to uh, to hold to. Yeah, well said. And by the way, Alistair McIntyre is the, the Marxist philosopher turned Catholic philosopher. So That's right. uh, he, has, he has quite his own uh, intellectual conversion uh, story uh, as well. Wrote many um, great yeah, and, books. And, yeah, yeah I, I think that... Um, that we, we should peel back the onion a little bit on this because one of your posts, I think it was the third of the Numbing Down series, explores how the liberal, and now I'm using liberal in sort of a lowercase L, or I guess uppercase L, sort of progressive synonym, right? So not, not classical liberal project, but rather this sort of progressive uh, liberal. What I like to call liberal liberals. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah, so the, the liberal liberals. In America, we just have conservative liberals and liberal liberals, but everybody right. is a big L liberal. Everybody buys yeah. into the American constitutional project. Right. Uh, at least most most people, not necessarily uh, everyone. Yeah, right? most. Not, not necessarily you and me, but um, yeah, so the, yeah, the, um, the liberal liberals, if we'll call them that, um, have sort of emphasized what you said about God being dangerous to the whole project, right? and have right. ceased to make him irrelevant. The conservative liberals, who we can call the neocons, um, have, have been sort of embarrassed by God and have tried to show that you don't actually need a theistic undergrounding uh, for understanding liberalism and for implementing its vision. You just need to start from first principles of natural law, and those don't have to be theistic first principles. But in doing so, both of them have, have compromised the whole project by severing it from its... Uh, yeah. from what should be its theological moorings, right? That's exactly right. That's well put, Zach. The fact of the matter is, I mean, I, I detail the problems with liberal Catholics, you know, small-l liberal Catholics versus neocon Catholics in, in the post, and I think both are deficient in mm -hmm. their own ways. But I want to be clear. I think their, their deficiencies are asymmetrical. In other words, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, choose between the neocons and the liberals, I would choose the neocons. Because at least they adhere to some version of Catholic orthodoxy. Right. My problem, though, is you, and you've correctly identified it, they, they, they tended to focus not on the foundational structures of liberalism as such, what they, which they accept, 
And they, they tend to basically accept the idea that, that liberalism has to remain neutral with regard to the question of God or religious truth or moral truth. They, they, they sort of accept the whole arrangement. But they think right. that we can still play in that sandbox if we develop sort of natural law sort of arguments on issues of great import, like gay marriage or abortion. Mm -hmm. Right. The trouble is, is that natural law is only a convincing argument to somebody who believes in God, yeah. because natural law says, what, what is natural law? It's, it comes from Aquinas and, and Augustine and says, it's our rational participation in the divine plan for creation. In other words, we have a logos in our mind, God implanted logos in the universe, so we, we can see the teleologies of the natural world through our reason alone. You don't necessarily have to have revelation. Mm -hmm. So you can right. bracket Jesus, you can bracket doctrines, you can bracket the church in your conversations with the world and develop this neutral natural law language. But it convinces nobody because everybody knows that ultimately you're making theological arguments. I mean, right. after all, natural law in Catholic tradition is not a philosophical argument, it's a theological one. It flows out of moral theology not philosophical ethics. And that is because it is grounded in a single proposition. God is the creator, and we can detect that. Now, if you don't accept that proposition, natural law arguments mean nothing to you. Nothing. And that's why the, the neocon Catholics failed uh, to convince America with regard to gay marriage and abortion. They even failed to convince Catholics. And so my claim is that the neocons, instead of being, like you said, sort of embarrassed by right. the specific faith claims of, of Catholicism as it enters the public square, instead of being embarrassed by that and attempting to develop this sort of neutral, uh, non-theological language, I think they should have just come out with theological arguments, period. Because those are the arguments the church has. Those are the, I mean, I remember when John Paul II came to the United States for the first time. And he made a statement about abortion. And here's what John Paul said. Human life is sacred from the very first moment of conception because it is the gift of a God whose love is infinite. And when that God gives life, it is forever. So he brought in sacred, God, yeah. infinite love. And that was a much more powerful argument than some sort of natural law argument about embryology and insolment or, you know, or whatever. Um... I don't know. I just thought in one little sentence, John Paul summed up the argument against abortion 10 times better than all the natural law theories. And I support natural law, but I think sure. it made for a lousy evangelical witness. Well, I think I think you're right that it's, you know, you said you support natural law, of course, uh, because you're yeah, a good Catholic. Do. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you know, to. there are there. Yeah, there are some Orthodox Christians I know who are rather skeptical of natural law because that's, you know, quite frankly, just not their tradition. Um, but but yeah, I think to make it an either or dichotomy is wrong. And I think to separate it from divine revelation is unhelpful um, and actually hurts your case more than helps it. That's my problem with the neocon project. And I want to be clear. Right. It's not with natural law theory. You have right. to, and even the Orthodox do some version of natural mm -hmm. law, moral theology. They just don't want to call it that because it's so tied up with Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, and exactly. It's so Western. You know, yeah. And Aristotle and Plato. Right. They just don't want to touch it. It's all too Roman to them. But they do some version of it, as do the better Protestant moral theologians who also hate right. natural law. But 
end up, if you don't want to just end up being a scriptural proof texting positivist, literalist, you have to ground the scriptural assertions in some sort of rational form of moral discourse. And the best form of that, most related to the doctrine of creation, is natural law. Right. But my main problem, though, with it is used in the culture wars and all that, is that it's not evangelical enough. And it, and it needs to be explicitly shown to be the theological project that it is. Yeah, well, I think your point about it not being evangelical enough is um, is one that extends to the American church as a whole. And frankly, it's why I am doing this podcast and calling it Creedal, because I do not want our faith to be something that we're ever embarrassed of or think that uh, we think that our faith doesn't actually have things to say to a world that desperately needs to hear those things. And so, you know, my point in, in doing Creedal and, and naming it that is to point out that our creed, our Catholic creed, says everything about how we should engage with the culture and how we should build our culture. And the culture in which we live is built on its own types of creeds, but we need to engage with those creeds and, and not be ashamed of our own creed. Um, and well, if I didn't think that we had the best case for our own creed, then I wouldn't be Catholic in the first place. Absolutely, and we also need to be aware of the fact that unless we talk about our own creed on our terms as a public form of discourse in the public square, others will talk about our creed for us and in erroneous ways. Right. And, and mischaracterize what it is that we think. Furthermore, they will co-opt our category. So, for example, to bring up a hot-button issue, you've got all the LGBTQ stuff, and one of their standard arguments that you see even from people like Father James Martin, he makes this mistake, where they say, oh, well, you know, God made me this way. I was, I was, you know, because I was either born with this or enculturated into this tendency at a very early age, I didn't choose it, and therefore, God made me this way. Right. And therefore, since God made me this way, God loves the way that I am and doesn't want me to change. Now, that's essentially a theological argument that somebody is making. Right, totally. Okay, and it's an absolutely horrific argument because it implies that if you are born with something, that God directly wills it, no matter what it is. I had a sister who was born with a severe heart defect. She suffered for five years and then died post-surgery. Uh, 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 you know, at age five, excuse me, and I don't believe for one second that God directly willed her to have that life. I don't think she was designed by God to have a heart defect simply because she was born with a heart defect. Uh, and, and so we, this opens up what we theologians call a theodicy problem, in other words, mm -hmm. a problem of evil. Right. The reason why evil is a problem in, in theology for an infinitely good and an infinitely loving God is, is that you, ha you can't have the case where God, God wills evil directly. All right, and so you, you might want to say, well, homosexuality is not evil. Okay, fine, fine, let's, let's have that debate on other grounds. Because you can't simply assert that something isn't deficient simply because you were born with it. Otherwise, you have to say that God also caused pedophiles and willed for mm -hmm. pedophiles to exist. God willed for all birth defects to exist. God willed for kids God to be born God wills for all cancers to exist. exist, yeah. Yeah, you know, so it, it's a really, it's an argument fraught with, and, and for a Jesuit like Father Martin to continue to tout this claim, that simply, simply because a homosexual may, was, may have been born with this tendency and didn't choose it, that therefore right. it's blessed by God and good, is just an absolutely astoundingly dumb argument. Now, to get back to your point, 
what is, this is why I think in some ways natural law arguments, though you have to have them, are not sufficient to the evangelical moment. Because other people, are even Catholics, are bypassing the natural law arguments and going directly to Jesus' arguments. Mm-hmm. They're going directly to theological arguments. And so we have to counter that with our creed, with direct sort of creedal statements of, no, so to, to for you know in a debate with James Martin, I would say exactly what I just said. I, I wouldn't necessarily begin with natural law arguments against gay sex or something. I, I would begin with this theological argument that underpins the entire Catholic project for legitimating LGBTQ, and that mm-hmm. has, the the debate has to go on in, on other levels. In other words, um, you forgot a couple letters though in the LGBTQ. I A plus. I I A plus. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned this example, though, because I increasingly feel like, you know, I live in two in, in an America where there are just two different camps of people who see reality in two totally different ways. Yes. Um, and, and, and I feel the same way about the Catholic Church, and I'll sort of get to that in a second. But just real quick, a story here. So I, um, I shared a, you know, I generally try to stay off of Facebook, but I shared a story from the New York Times um, just yesterday. And the New York Times article, you may have seen it, but it was it was like a, it was like your guide to neo pronouns. And the premise is I that did not see are, it. <laughs> consider yourself blessed then um, I wouldn't waste your time. But the um, the article is describing how more and more young people are choosing neo pronouns by which to go. And these are not simply they them or, you know, Z. Was Z, Z. Yeah, it's not just those, right? This is this is like coming up with your own pronouns to describe yourself. So for example, in the article, uh, or the article mentioned uh, kitten and kitten self, or vamp and vamp self as in vampire. Uh, and there were some other just totally ridiculous ones. And I had shared this and said um, that the New York Times has beca- had become a parody of itself. And, uh, and that was because the New York Times was not, was not reporting on this as a trembling psychological trend among young people, but as, you know, your guide to neo-pronouns, because you, Larry Chap, need to be educated on how to interact with these people who go by neo-pronouns, right? So uh, it's just totally ridiculous. And, you know, the, the comments that I received were, were mostly positive, but one person just immediately said that I, I uh, am being transphobic. And I was just like, in, in what world, first of all, this is not actually about trans people. This is not about gender dysphoria. This is about people who think that they're vampires or kittens, right? So this is a totally different thing. Yeah. But it's just amazing that you and I can look at this article and you think the New York Times is being um, bold and transgressive and journalistic. And I think that they're being completely ridiculous. And we just inhabit two different spheres of reality in that regard, because our starting presuppositions are so different. And I was thinking about that in the context of what you describe in your recent blog posts with, with what I really increasingly feel like is two different Catholic churches in America, and more broadly, probably the world. I'm sure I would feel the same way in Europe. Maybe not, you know, in in um, in a place where the church is is very vibrant and growing like Africa. But I think in in sort of the developed Western Catholic sphere, I increasingly feel like there's two churches. Right there are there there's the church uh, that is um, filled with people who um, who love Christ and His church and who want to draw closer to Him every single day, and then there are those for whom the faith really makes no material difference in their lives. And you can see that uh, in the studies that we've talked about before, where the vast majority of Catholics don't actually believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood, or even worse, they don't, be- they don't know that they should believe that as Catholics. They don't know that's a requirement to believe, right? They, they actually think right. it's, it's, it's the church's teaching that it's a symbol. So we just inhabit two different spheres of reality. And uh, your most recent post where you talk about sort of beige and board Catholicism is an example of that latter group that, 
they, they um, you know, and this is sort of related to the de facto atheism that you've talked about before, right? That it's not necessarily they don't believe God is real, but they believe that he's some sort of, you know, um, ethereal bundle of energies or animating force that has no real import to their lives here and has nothing actually to say about how we live on earth here and now. Oh, absolutely. You said before, it's not that they don't believe that God is real. Uh, I'm not certain I completely agree with the way that's phrased. I, I think that they believe God exists, but it's precisely his realness that they uh, don't yeah. That they don't embrace. In other words, yeah, that's fair. God exists, as you correctly put, in that sort of ethereal place mm -hmm. of well, maybe there's a paradise park in the sky, and I hope I can go there someday. Uh, right. it, it's 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 a very sort of nominal faith of a very weak sort. Right. But really, what uh, what the what the uh, sociologists call their plausibility structures. In other words, what really counts for them as the authentic and the real is something that they've simply taken in from modern liberal culture. Uh, and so they don't really uh, experience God on a day-to-day -day level, and they don't experience him at church as anything authentically real. He, he exists as a tantalizing possibility, uh, a myth that might be true, but not mm -hmm. a dense, concrete, real thing. And that is what I mean by sort of de facto atheism. Uh, I mean, we have to remember even Satan believes in God, right? you know, and so, and even Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's his way of saying nominal belief that such a being exists. And even if you acknowledge it from time to time is not enough. True faith can, involves a conversion of the heart. And therefore you're talking about these two churches. The church has always been pluralistic in the mm -hmm. sense of a multiplicity of languages, some different liturgical forms, different sure. emphases and spirituality and so forth. But in the past, the one thing that most Catholics held in common, the vast majority, no matter where they lived, was a burning conviction that the reason for being Catholic was the pursuit of holiness. Now, right. you might fudge on that pursuit. You might be a horrible sinner. But at You'll definitely least fail everybody in that pursuit, yeah. agreed everybody agreed that that was the goal and so you were either a self-righteous catholic or a guilty guilty catholic or a sort of truly holy catholic who was actually hitting the mark nominally uh you all fit in that group but you are right now we have two churches in this sense in the united states you have these progressive sort of liberal catholics who actually question that very consensus that holiness is the goal. They right. view that as simply code for sexual morality and, and the old guilt Catholicism. Liberal yep. And the LGBTQ stuff is instructive here. What liberal Catholicism wants to do is essentially to remove the stigma of sin from Catholicism and to replace it simply with flaws and vices that you need therapy for. Uh, and, and it's a real desire to just sort of leave people in their place. I mean, look at this message. God loves you just as you are, period. Well, that's true. But there's mm -hmm. another sentence that needs to be added. Right. Yeah. And he wants you to be better. Right. And calls you to be better. And calls you to holiness. But liberals in this almost completely different church want to simply stop there. God loves you as you are. Full stop. Now let's have a party. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally true. And I think, um, you know, the... Uh, 
on that point about the sort of uh, liberal progressive wing of the church that wants to just affirm everything that you are, the problem, there are many problems with that. One of them is that it, it cultivates an attitude of indifference to sure. God because, because all of us are sinners. All of us are flawed and God does love all of us as we are, but calls all of us to be better calls all of us to holiness. Yeah. And, you know, just today, actually, in a, uh, in a, um, a homily, my pastor, my, uh, the parochial vicar at my parish, said that, you know, the thing that God can't stand the most is indifference, indifference to him. And, you know, uh, the demons believe God, like you said, right? Even, scripture tells us, you know, even, the, even the St. Paul writes, right? Even the demons believe that and shudder, right? But they shudder precisely because they're convinced of God's reality. Exactly. So, so, so even their belief is in some ways better than the, uh, the, in, the, than the indifference that many people have today where they do believe that God exists, like you said, but to, it just doesn't make any difference to them. I mean, it's, and it's good to know that this ethereal bundle of energies loves me and affirms me for exactly who I am and wants me to be content in everything that I do, right? But yeah, like, that's, that, that's, the, that's the worst of all possible worlds. Can ethereal bundle of energies even, even love? That's, that's another exactly. question, right. which is why new agey spiritualities are a sort of strange amalgam, a strange syncretism of Christianity with its personal loving God and modern quantum physics, witchcraft. Right. Totally. Shimmy Shang, something or other about crystals and energy and all, all <laughs> kinds of stuff. But to go back to the thing about, you know, God leaves me where, God loves me where I am is really code for God just wants to leave me where I am. I don't even use that phrase anymore, God loves me just as I am. I, I prefer to say God loves me despite who I am. God right. loves me despite my sins. Because God does not love my sins. Precisely mm -hmm. because he does love me. Just like a parent loves their child, but their child might be into all kinds of self-destructive behaviors. Totally, you, yeah. You know, like they skip school or don't do their homework or, you know, are token weed in the parking lot after school. You don't want them doing any of those things, even if you did them yourself, and maybe precisely because you did them yourself and you're giving them the, the wisdom of age and parenthood, and you don't want them to do it. So you don't, in a sense, love your children right where they are. You love them despite who they might be in their totally. flaws. And this is the grave. That's why there almost are two churches. The church you and I sort of believe in, our creed is we believe in a church that's calling us to holiness, calling us to conversion, mm -hmm. calling us to repentance, and gives us all the means of grace necessary to do so. Right. The other side is not saying any of that. And even those means of grace, they, they sort of dumb down into simple celebrations of the religious impulse on a par with everybody else's religious rituals. Yeah. Yeah, that's so well said. Um, to shift gears a little bit here, but, but it's certainly uh, in the same vein. You've also written recently about how the USCCB is just overcome by bureaucracy and sort of hamstrung by its bureaucratic structures. Uh, this is in the second post in your Numbing Down of the Church series, in which you're explaining more of what you mean by the Numbing Down of the Church, right? It's precisely that, um, that people have become immune, indifferent to the reality of God, and that even the good bishops among us are constrained by the bureaucratic structures of the very apparatuses, whatever the plural of apparati, whatever the plural of apparatus is, uh, that in which they preside, right? And so uh, I can think of no better example, perhaps, than uh, the inauguration week when the USCCB issued a statement um, oh, yeah. you know, saying basically we're praying for Joe Biden and we pray that he especially will be authentically Catholic in his, in his uh, views. Yeah. And... Um, 
the complaint from uh, uh, Cardinal Supich of Chicago was, oh, we didn't we didn't get this through the right committees before it went out. <laughs> like, are, are you kidding me? Like, are, you're not you're not actually saying that anything in the substance here is wrong, but your complaint well, is that it did not, not go through that, the right bureaucratic even process. Even the bylaws of the USCCB says that the president of the USCCB can issue any statement that he wants on his own and on his own initiative. Right. So Supich, right. and this is isn't this typical then? Because it brings us back to the point at hand of the bureaucratic mentality. It not only allows for a certain safety in numbers and anonymity sure. and yeah. hiding behind procedures and committees and so forth. It also allows for a great deal of mendacity, just flat out lying. I mean, Supich damn well knew that, that the president of the USCCB had exactly those kinds of executive privileges and could do totally, so. Totally, yeah. But he obviously was doing a rear guard action to protect, you know, democratic politics uh, you know, I, you know what? I'm, I'm sure in his heart of hearts, Supich doesn't like Joe Biden's stand on abortion, but and probably partly agreed. But the fact is, he so hates Republicans and he so hates what he thinks, I think, is the hypocrisy of the pro-life movement uh, that he was just flummoxed that the bishops would do that. And so had to concoct some kind of an argument ad hoc. And so that's the one he came up with. But it, it was mendacious, it was ham-handed, and only mm -hmm. a bureaucratic-minded church could even think of saying things like that. And it's unfortunate that, um, unfortunately is maybe the wrong word, but uh, it is not good that Supich is you know, one of the, I think, three American prelates who's on the um, Committee for Bishops that, that have been appointed by Francis, is that right? Yes, I mean, that was the in part one of the, I mean, the, the, the one on the dung beetles, <laughs> you know, yeah. the Church of Dung Beetles. Uh, yeah, it, it's troubling because Supich and, uh, Car and Cardinal Tobin of Newark, Tobin, yeah. both well-known liberal progressives, very LGBTQ friendly, the whole nine yards, soft on pro-life issues. Uh, they have been elevated to the Congregation for Bishops in the Vatican. And for those who don't know, I mean, that's the committee in the Vatican that chooses bishops mm -hmm. and various groups around the world. So the troubling thing is it seems to indicate that Pope Francis wants Supich and Tobin-type bishops to be appointed now in the United States, and he, and he wants Supich and Tobin uh, to do that. Now, uh, Cardinal Farrell, another liberal, had already been elevated to a Vatican post a few years ago, not with the Congregation for Bishops, for something else, um, for the laity or something or other, I don't know, one of those obscure pastries yeah. in the Vatican. But anyway, so you've got this he's the third one now, American right? cardinals. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, Cardinal Farrell was a housemate, a roommate for years of Cardinal McCarrick. And, you know, that's why I call him the Sergeant Schultz of the, Schultz of the Episcopacy. If you remember yeah. the old Hogan's heroes. Just oh, I, I, no, as soon I as I read that, nothing, so. nothing, <laughs> you know, and turn the other way. Who, who actually believes that Cardinal Farrell didn't? I mean, let me tell you a little story here. In 1982, I was in seminary, and I won't say where or for what diocese or whatever. Yeah. But my so. roommate was a seminarian for the Diocese of Metuchen, who at the time had as their bishop uh, Theodore McCarrick. And my roommate proceeded to tell me that it was common knowledge in Matushin that McCarrick took seminarians to his beach house and pressured them into sexual favors. And that you knew that if you denied these things that he would have certain repercussions against you. 
And he said, that's why I have resisted going down to this beach house, even though I've been invited. I said, so everybody knows this? I was so young and naive at the time. Are you sure, kidding me? Yeah. Why don't they do something about this? <laughs> that's yeah. how naive I was. You know, like, oh, my goodness. So the other bishops know this, and they don't do anything. How terrible. And, and so my point is this. I, as a 22-year-old man, sitting in an obscure seminary room, knew that McCarrick was a pervert. But the man living with him for years did not. It's the same with Cardinal Whirl, who's still getting $2 million a year year from Wilton Gregory in Washington, Mm D.C. Wilton Gregory also has two degrees of separation from McCarrick. You know, uh, Supich, Tobin, Farrell, Whirl, Gregory, they're all two degrees of separation from Uncle Ted McCarrick which says that not only these are the kinds of bishops that Pope Francis wants in the United States, it also shows that Pope Francis is utterly and completely, he's either tone deaf to the issue of McCarrick in the United States, or he doesn't mm-hmm. care. Yeah. And I think the latter possibility is the scarier possibility. That this is, that appointing these men, I mean, McCarrick is where, in Washington, D.C. is where McCarrick did most of his damage. And by right, appointing yeah. a McCarrick, after all that went down, after all that went down with McCarrick, to appoint a McCarrick protege, Wilton Gregory, as his successor in Washington, was Pope Francis giving the church the middle finger, the church in the United States the middle finger. And, and I mean, if I may say that on your, on your video cast, I don't know. For sure. No, you definitely can. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean. You know, all of these things together mean that, yes, I think that, they get away with this because none of their brother bishops criticize them. You know, when Supich came out and criticized, you know, uh, the head of the USCCB, I can't think of his name right now. When, when, he, when he criticized... Denardo? What's that? Daniel Denardo? Denardo, yes, thank you. When he criticized him, he was breaking protocol. He was breaking that unspoken agreement that bishops don't yeah. criticize other bishops in public. And despite the fact that he crossed the line very illegitimately and even lied why he did so, there was not a single other American bishop that came forward to challenge Supich or to challenge Pope Francis in appointing Supich to a position in Rome. Every other American bishop is silent. Even the good ones are silent. And there are many good ones. There are many excellent bishops in the United States. So one has to wonder... Why aren't they, they more loquacious? Why aren't they speaking out? And I don't think it's fear of reprisal. They're bishops. You know, and, and a lot of these guys, like I said, they're good bishops, which means they're holy men with integrity. Right. And if the Pope wants to come down, well, you know, but they have this groupthink mentality created by this bureaucratic apparatus. And I don't know how it happens, but once they become bishops, they become mute to, to any sort of substantive criticism of what's going on in the church. And it is beyond me to understand. Yeah, it really is amazing how how infrequently we hear bishops talking writ large or about the problems in the church writ large. Um, you know, they'll, they'll make a comment here. They'll issue a statement about a public official and how they have a position on abortion that's incompatible with church teaching, etc., uh, they might take a, a stand against a vaccine like Bishop Strickland, I think, of Tyler, Texas has done. Yeah. Um, but it's it's rare that we it's rare that we see them talk about all the problems that beset the church globally. Uh, and I think I think it would be helpful if we if the faithful did, because 
It is hard. You know, if, if I have a Protestant listener, and I have several um, who are listening to this, they hear us talking for the first 40 minutes of this conversation, and they think, why would I ever want to be Catholic? These guys, these guys are talking about this like there are there are a ton of problems in this church, and this is not something I want to be a part of. I should just go to my evangelical church down the street, which, sure, yeah. like I might not agree with everything, but that's kind of the thing with evangelical Protestantism. You don't have to agree with everything. You have evangelicals to agree with have their own schedules and their own corruptions. It's it's so true. I mean, definitely. I mean, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Camp Tanacook. It's a um, very large evangelical Christian camp in uh, uh, Camp uh, Br- uh, Branson, Missouri. And uh, David French of the Dispatch, formerly of National Review, right. uh, has has done a series of um, reports detailing this this very large um, sex scandal at Camp Tanacook. So sure. yeah, I mean, this is first of all, these things are not unique to Catholicism, right? But um, to get back to the basics a little bit. You end that um, in that four-part series, and you're, you started your next one on the call to holiness. This is something that we've talked about uh, at length before, as the real solution, the real way out here, and the only way you know, out. one of the the only way out. And one of the, um, or I guess, the great insight of the Second Vatican Council was emphasizing that. Now, in a uh, in a post that you just released on your blog, you say that it did not go far enough. Uh, precisely because it needs to be more radical. I think, I think this is actually the fourth of your numbing down, right? It needs yeah, to be more radical yeah. and, and be more more incisive, more insightful in diagnosing the signs of the times and prescribing as a corrective to those signs that every single Catholic person is called to holiness. Every layperson, every priest, deacon, bishop, every pope called to holiness. Um, and so, you know, that... I'm Catholic because I remain convinced that the Catholic Church is true. I remain convinced that this is the church that Jesus Christ founded. And I remain convinced that Jesus Christ will not abandon his church. That does not mean that there will not be problems. That does not mean that there will not be tares growing among the wheat. Uh, This is all in in a certain way to be expected. Um, But but holiness is the way out of this. So um, maybe as we we look to wrap this one up, Larry, um, maybe let's kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, one of your favorite saints. I've heard you talk about Dorothy Day, who's not not a saint, you know, parentheses yet, uh, maybe one day. Uh, servant but, of God. Tell she me, is on her way. She's fishing yeah, at yeah. servant of God level. Exactly. So tell me about maybe an, another, or, or tell me a Dorothy Day story or, or about another saint. Tell me about someone who can inspire us Catholics in this call to holiness. Well, I, I think Dorothy Day is a good example, even though most of us couldn't emulate her specific form of life, which was total poverty and living yeah. in a soup kitchen and running houses of hospitality. I mean, that's a that's a super radical evangelical response on her part. We're not all called to do it. Nevertheless, it's very inspiring to see here is a woman, for starters, in a period of time supposedly where women were so disempowered in the church, mm-hmm. uh, a former atheist, a former Marxist, a woman who had had sexual relations out the wazoo and uh, had an abortion, Uh, for example, uh, before she converted to Catholicism, but then was Mm -hmm. so passionate about finding the truth about existence, for starters, and then God, it eventually led her to the Catholic Church. And once she did discover the truth of the Catholic Church, she threw herself into it totally and completely. She was, in other words, a prime example. In other words, even though we don't have to emulate her whole pattern of life, she was an example of total conversion, and that's really what I'm on about here. In my, you know, the hobby horse I'm riding is that the church has lost her eschatological edge. The church has lost yeah. 
the punch and force of the call to conversion. And so we really do need modern saints like a Dorothy Day or even a Thomas Merton, who isn't a saint, but people who were just totally profligate in their former lives, a real St. Augustine type, you know, living a life of wine, women, and mirth and, yeah. and song, and, and then encounter Christ and are utterly converted. Most, and this is what I mean by sort of bourgeois Christianity, Bourgeois Christianity is the Christianity of the half-converted, of the mm -hmm. sort of converted, of people who have one foot in both camps because they're hedging their bets. You know, I believe right. in Jesus and stuff, but I'm not giving up this and I'm not giving up that yep. because if I give all that up, I won't be happy. So, yeah, you know, I mean, just like the rich man who comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do? That's right. I'll follow all the commandments, etc." And Jesus says, sell, that all, sell all that you have, and he goes away. Sad yeah, and I'm not preaching like, that, an elitism here. I, I'm not calling sure. for what I'm calling for is everybody, for all of us, for most of us to be on the same page that we at least agree, no matter where we are on the path, that holiness is the goal, that conversion is the goal. We need a church that doubles down on those spiritual themes, a church that quits talking, quits talking endlessly about issues that are so tangential. Yeah. To the gospel. They're not necessarily unimportant issues like climate change and immigration. Those are not unimportant issues, but they're not central to the church's mission. Yeah. And in point of fact, the deepest solution to those intractable problems in our society is conversion of the mm -hmm. individuals. How much poverty, for example, would we eliminate in the United States if we could get, convert people to the faith? And so that they would give up the self-destructive things that have led them into poverty. How much yeah. more economic justice if we could get corporate leaders to convert and be, yeah. I mean, as, uh, you know, as in, in, in what was it, in Padre Jesimo Anno and some of the social encyclicals, the, the Pope's mm -hmm. calling for us to, in a sense, answer social injustice through conversion. We need that yeah. church to return. Desperately. I love it. Yeah, I love that. Uh, all well said. And of course, you're not you're not saying that the conversion is simply instrumental towards you know economic justice, et cetera. Rather, you're saying that the economic justice are is a symptom of the the radical true conversion. And that which is we an always, as Americans, even American Catholics, we always approach uh, issues as if they're technical problems with technical solutions, yeah. or they're yes. political problems with political solutions. We, because of the nature of political liberalism, which in a sense has banished God from the public square, yeah. we never think of spiritual causes or solutions first. Yeah. And the point to the church should be, 99% of the problems that ail all of yuns is spiritual. So if you would right. come to Christ, you would find the answer to these problems. But we're not even doing that with Catholics. Uh, yeah. By and large, with some extensions, and and that's that's the sad and tragic part. We we really do have. Let's leave these people where they are. Catholicism, so they can still put money in the envelopes. Catholicism, right? Now, your last point there about spiritual problems and spiritual solutions. I've been thinking about this a lot over this past year as we've battled the COVID nineteen pandemic. And I had um, a Dominican on the podcast last summer, Father Anthony uh, Gembrone, who um, uh, teaches in Jerusalem at the French Bible School there. Uh, and is just an absolutely brilliant guy. And he had given a lecture at the Mystic, at the Thomistic Institute. Um, I think it was the title was, Is God Behind the COVID-19 Pandemic? 
right? And, and to the modern mind, that's a completely ridiculous proposition. Like, of yeah, course exactly. it's not. You know, it's a it's a spike protein that came from, you know, either a bat in the wild or some some lab, uh, you know, accidental yeah. release from gain of function research, et cetera. Um, and so so it was a really interesting discussion to hear him sort of explore that possibility um, and, and take a step back and explore how God uses, you know, proximate causes to achieve his ends. Uh, and then also, you know, on the point of spiritual solutions, you know, does the COVID-19 pandemic have a spiritual solution? Well, uh, not in the sense that if you convert and come to Christ, you are uh, physically immune, uh, you know, to Yeah, you got a Jesus vaccine or something. <laughs> right, right. Not in that sense, certainly. No. Um, but, uh, you know, perhaps in the sense that, you know, I, I think so much of our sort of societal unraveling over the past year has been because of our collective inability to grasp the reality and the inevitability of death. And so, so we have become so scared and so terrified of death as COVID-19, you know, the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic can hasten it, that we have just sort of lost all modicum of restraint and virtue and proportionality in dealing with this. So in that sense, you know, the, the COVID-19 thing makes the spiritual solution problem um, very real to me. Yeah, I mean, if, if we had a much more deeply spiritual country, I think that yeah. our response to COVID would have been far different. We really did yeah. react to it in this absolutely hysterical, fearful way that made it very, very clear that there's nothing that Americans fear more than death, physical death, and that we exactly. will destroy our economy and we will destroy lives in order to, even the, even if in that destruction we create more deaths long-term, uh, right people tend to think that they can manage those things for themselves. They just didn't want to die now by this virus that they that weren't certain they could avoid. And absolutely, yeah. it's absolutely true. Not to mention the totally. fact that the loss of civil liberties in, in a much more yes. deeply, deeply theological church and culture, the loss of civil, civil liberties should have been deeply, deeply disturbing to most people. Uh, it, it's uh, For a virus with such a low death rate, one wonders why the oppressive measures that were taken were so draconian. It, it really... Yeah. Well, take, for example, the J&J &J vaccine that they've just pulled off the market. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Out of, out of 10 million doses that have been applied, I think six people got blood clots from yeah. six. Yeah. Okay. It's like a 0.02% or something. Well, there's a, um, it's like five times higher risk of blood clots if you're if you're taking artificial contraception. Right. Yet, yeah, it's so true. I mean, when is the pill getting ripped off the market because it mm -hmm. causes blood clots, blood yep. clots in women? And by the way, I read the thing that said of the six people that got blood clots from the J and J vaccine, all six were women between the ages of eighteen and forty nine. It makes one wonder mm. if they were not in Does. fact women of reproductive age that were on the birth control pill yes and and the j&j &J vaccine happened to maybe in synergy with that yeah create so in other words i'm you know i'm no epidemiologist I mean, it's, it's, covid yeah, is real true. it makes people sick yeah. but i agree with you completely uh our response to it has just been irrational and driven by fear as well as mm -hmm. greed and self-interest a nation filled with christian believers would have reacted much less irrationally it would have been a far more rational and measured response no doubt yeah i totally I, I totally agree with you um and to, to link this back to our previous comments about the universal call to holiness you mentioned right our greatest fear in america is death 
And I think that that extends across the developed Western secular world. Our greatest fear is death, right? Because because of a number of things. One, we've gotten used to this bourgeois existence where we're comfortable and we don't like to suffer and we're not used to suffering. But two, because we have shed the belief in God, you know, this, this giant encumbrance that is belief in God uh, off from ourselves. And so we actually have no confidence whatsoever about what lies beyond the veil. And so those two things together, I think, make us really scared of suffering and more specifically of death. Um, and so we say the greatest tragedy in life is to die. Uh, of course, all of us die, so that, that tragedy in life is therefore inevitable, and that sort of makes for a miserable existence when you know that you will, in fact, die one day. But contrast that with um, the French Catholic Leon Bloy, who said the greatest tragedy in life is, and I think he said the only real tragedy, is to not it's become not to a, be saint. a saint. Yeah, not to yeah. become a saint. And yeah. the, the, that is, oh gosh, I, I wish I had thought of that. I'd have put it in my blog. That, that's a perfect <laughs> uh, contrast, that Leon Bloy quote. The only real yeah. tragedy is to never become a saint. And uh, you juxtapose that with, you know, the American view that the only tragedy is to die physical death. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So on that on that note, we will end this conversation. But I do want to mention, Larry, we're going to do a live discussion. So uh, I'm going to make that known to my listeners. I think you'll probably uh, post something on your blog about it as well. We're scheduling yeah. this for Tuesday, May 4th at 8 p.m. Eastern time, 5 p.m. Pacific. Um, if you want to get notified, just click the subscribe button here on YouTube to my channel. You should get notified then, uh, but I'll also I'll post it up here so you can you can click specifically on that live conversation to uh, get notified when we start. But Tuesday, May fourth, at eight p.m. Eastern, five p.m. Pacific. Um, so if you want to watch that live, please do and uh, just come on and and post questions in the chat for Larry or myself. Larry is the smarter guy, so probably the questions. Oh, I don't know Larry. about that, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll have some questions for Larry as well. I, also, you know, if you just want us to record, or if you can't if you can't attend the live session for whatever reason, and you want to send in a question ahead of time, um, it, Larry, I don't know if you want to put this on your blog, and then people can put 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 comments on the post or something. And uh, if that doesn't work, feel free to email me. Uh, as well, ZAC at credopodcast.com. Um, so either of those two ways, you can just send in questions ahead of time and uh, and I'll uh, I'll put them on the list so that we can try to get to as many as we can. Yeah, I'll try to get uh, this the live conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds great. Yeah, so in, in the next couple of days, um, Larry can post something and I'll, I'll put something on uh, social media as well. So yeah, we just love to have as many questions as possible. We'll, we'll get to as many as we can. It'll I'm be fun. We'll have, so a great, we'll have a great time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So Tuesday, May 4th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Um, and Larry, I think that's all I've got today. So um, to my listeners, uh, to Larry's readers, thank you so much for joining us for another episode uh, in this monthly installment of the Conversations with Larry. We need like a, a catchy title for it, Larry. Like, I don't know, The Professor is in or, or the Conversations yeah. with Larry. I don't know, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, let's put our heads together and come up with something catchy. We'll workshop that. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. All uh, right, so good. thanks so much for listening, though. Uh, any any feedback on the discussion or questions you have for me or Larry or comments, feel free to send them to me, Zach, Z-A-C, at credalpodcast.com. Larry, thanks so much for joining me. I'll see you again soon. And until next time, God bless you.